Everybody will turn in your Bible, please, to Deuteronomy chapter 2. So as most of you know, we've been coming through the book of Deuteronomy together. And God willing, today, we aim to make it from chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 2, verse 24 to chapter 3, verse 11. Let's pray, and then we're going to jump right into reading the text and just trying to understand the plain meaning of what's here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for letting us sing to you and call out to you in prayer. And now, Lord, we come to your word. God, we love your word. We have prayed many times, God, and we come to you with this request again that we would be those that tremble at your words. That you would give us submissive hearts. That you would cause us to worship as we see your attributes, Lord. You'd give us faith, Lord. Fill our hearts with faith as we read these, these words about you. God, please help us. We recognize this morning that we need your help, Lord. Unless you build the house, Lord, we, we labor in vain as we build. So please, God, help us this morning. Give us ears to hear. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, we're going Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24 to chapter 3, verse 11. I want us to start off here by reading this in, in a few different sections and just understanding. I read a section and then try to help us think about the plain meaning of it. So look at verse 24 and 25, and this is sort of an introduction to the battles that we're about to read about. Verse 24 this is, this is Moses to the people of Israel, that new generation before they enter into the promised land, reminding them of what God has done. Verse 24. Rise up, set out on your journey, and go over the valley of the Arnon. Behold, I have given into your hands Sihon, the Amorite, king of Heshbon, and his land. Begin to take possession and contend with him in battle. This day, I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven, who shall hear the report of you and shall tremble and be in anguish because of you. Having called the people of Israel into holy restraint, now he calls them to holy warfare. Do you remember from last week, as we meditated on chapter 2, verse 1 through 23, or 1 through 25 really, do you remember that holy restraint that God had called them to? That the people of Israel, this new generation, was moving towards a promised land. And as they did that, they're going to pass three different people groups. Esau and Moab and Ammon. And, and as you do that, those people are even going to provoke you in some ways. And yet God tells them, don't harm these people. Don't fight these people. Don't go into battle with these people. He calls them to holy restraint three different times in the previous section. God's people are a people that are restrained, a people that are restrained by God's word. This is a reminder to us. This holy restraint is a reminder to us that this, this taking possession of the promised land is not a license for the people of Israel to kill whoever they want, fight in battle and kill whoever you want. It's not that. You're going to come across these people and these people and these people, and I want you not to bother them. Restrain yourselves, though they may provoke you. And in verse 24 and 25, 
having called them to restraint, now he calls them to battle. Now he calls them to holy warfare. So in verse 24, they're called to fight an Amorite king, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and his people. And then God promises to do, after calling them to fight in verse 24, he promised to, promises to do something in verse 25. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven. You're about to go into the promised land and your call there is to fight and battle these different peoples and take possession of the land. I'm going to put the fear of you on those people as you go to war against Sihon and as we'll see in a minute, Og, these kings of the Amorites. Now that's actually going to be fulfilled. You don't have to flip there, but I want to read this to you. This is Joshua chapter 2. So as they actually do, under the leadership of Joshua, just a short time later, go into the promised land. Watch how, listen, as, you, as I read this, watch how God does exactly what he said in verse 25. He causes the hearts of the nations to melt. Listen to what it says. This is Joshua 2 verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. That's Rahab. She was one of the people that are part of these groups that they're supposed to go take possession of their land. And she said to the man this, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you, Israel, the fear of you has fallen upon us. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. That's God fulfill, fulfilling his promise in verse 25 of Deuteronomy 2. Rahab goes on to say, For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did, listen, we have heard what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Now those two battles, Sihon and Og, we're about to read about it. And here's a good time, a little, a little bit of time later, and these people are saying, we heard about those battles, we heard about what you did, what God did through you, and it's caused the heart of the nations to melt in fear, which is a direct fulfillment of what God said back in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25. This day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you on the peoples who are under the whole heaven. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, they're called to battle, they're given this promise. In the following verses, we're going to see two battles detailed for us. And, and, Mo, and again, Moses has reminded them of these two battles that they've already won, they've already accomplished. And, and, and just, to, just to give you a framework here, chapter 2, verse 26 through 37, that's the end of the, end of the chapter, is detailing the battle against Sihon, a king of the Amorites. And keep that in mind, these are Amorite kings, that'll come up later. And then, chapter 3, as we continue to read, chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, will detail the battle against Og, another king of another group of Amorite people. And then chapter, eight, chapter 3, verse 8 through 11, gives us a summary of these things. So we're going to see two battles detailed, and verse 8 through 11 gives us a summary. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. It says, So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. And then it goes on to detail the lands that they took possession of in that time. So that's where we're headed. Let's read chapter 2, verse 26 through 37, the battle against Sihon, king of the Amorites. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, Let me pass through your land, and I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink. Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau who live in Seir 
and the Moabites who live in Ard did for me until I go, until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon the king of Heshbon would not let us pass by him for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Aurora, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon did you not draw near. That is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and all the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Now, plain meaning of what we just read. We read the battle against Sihon, one of the kings of the Amorites. And the first thing that Moses does, that Israel does, is, is give an offer of peace to these people. Hey, just like with Moab, just like with, with, uh, with Esau, uh, let us pass peacefully through your land. We'll use our money to buy drink, our money to buy food. You'll profit. We'll pass through safely. He offers peace to them initially. And what we find out is they, Sihon rejects the offer of peace, and so they begin to fight. They go to war. They battle. And this is a huge victory. As Israel beats Sihon, Israel, Israel conquers Sihon, king of the Ammonites. This, this was, a, this was a, a massive battle. This is a legendary figure, as we'll find out as we continue to read. A legendary figure here in Sihon. And what it says is, all his cities... Not just one, not two, but all of his cities taken and completely destroyed and possessed by Israel. Now verse 37 gives us a quick reminder that again, remember there's restraint here. This is, they're, they're taking possession of the land that God tells them. They're restrained by the word of God because verse 37 says there's these other people and they didn't take possession of their land because God had forbidden them. Now, that's the battle against Sihon, the victory there against this Amorite king. Now, let's move to chapter 3, verse 1 through 7. We're going to read the battle here against Og. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edri. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, and we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities, the whole region of Argob, the king, the kingdom of Og in Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars, besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction, as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, Devoted to destruction, every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So again, plain meaning here. They turn from the battle of Sihon, and then as they move forward on their journey towards the promised land, the king, 
the king named Og meets them for battle to fight. They go to battle against Og, this other king of the, of the Amorites. And again, this is a massive victory. Og is a legendary figure in the Bible, as we'll see as we continue to read. And it says that they took 60 of their fortified cities, high walls and gates and bars, and they took 60 cities. Can you imagine it? And left no survivors. Now, just to get a taste of how legendary this moment is, I want you to go to our last verse in our text today, verse 11. It gives a little parenthetical statement about Og. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephium. These are the folks that the new generation, remember their fathers were scared to go in to the promised land, and so they didn't get to go. It's the kind of people they were scared of. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. It is, not in, is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. So he's saying this man is massive. Legendary figure, Sihon and Og, defeated by Israel. By the grace and help of God. Now, chapter 3, verse 8 through 11 gives us a summary. Let's read that. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites. It's two kings, two battles, Sihon and Og, who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Selica and Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og in Bashan. Now, these two battles, okay, that's the summary statement. These two battles of Israel against Sihon and against Og are of massive importance. Now, that's interesting because, I, I mean, I think you would agree with me on this, that these seem to be less well-known battles, Everybody knows about the battle at Jericho, but what about the battles against Sihon and Og in this, in this Transjordan region? What about these battles? And these battles are of massive importance. I want you to see that just from the repetition. Now, now we're not going to read these verses. And, and for you note takers, I'm probably going to say this too fast for you to be happy with me. But I'm going to say this quickly. Listen to all these the, the repetition of how many times we get reminded about these battles against Sihon and Og. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 4, we were introduced to it right there. And this is, not even, this is not even counting what happened in Numbers where you actually read about it in the book of Numbers. And then our book in Deuteronomy introduces Moses' words to Israel in that way that this happened after the battles of Sihon and Og. That's Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 4. Of course, here, Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we've got details of these battles just like we saw in Numbers. You can go back and read that. Deuteronomy 4:46, we get another reminder of these battles. Deuteronomy 29, verse 7, we get another reminder of these battles. Deuteronomy 31, verse 4, we get another reminder that Israel won these battles against Sihon and Og. Joshua 2, verse 8 through 10 that we read just a moment ago, we get another reminder of these battles, and we see the nations are pondering what God did there. 1 Kings 4:19, we get another reminder of these battles. Psalm 135, we're going to see Sihon and Og mentioned there, and that battle being won, those battles being won. Psalm 136, we're going to see it there as well, and also Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 22, the people of Israel, after they, after they return from Babylon, are going to worship God for the victory that was won at, against Sihon and Og. Now, does that surprise you? Does it surprise you that this is mentioned over and over and over again, these Battles against Sihon and Og are of massive importance. Now, I want us to get into the why behind this, the, the, the reason for these battles, the reason these things happen, and, and the reason that they're recorded for us in Numbers and Deuteronomy and all these other places. I want to get into that in just a moment, but before we do that, I want us to try to deal with a couple of difficulties in this text. I want us to deal with a couple of difficulties 
that are in this text. Two difficulties. Number one, complete sovereignty. And number two, complete destruction. So number one, complete sovereignty. Number two, complete destruction. Let's deal with these so-called difficulties in the text. Number one, we see here the complete sovereignty of God. Now I want you to see it in the text. Look at verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. You remember that? They offered peace to the king, and he, would, he didn't take the offer of peace. He would not let them pass by, but rather went to battle against them. And then look at the next phrase. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. Now notice that does not say therefore. So Shihon wouldn't let him pass by. And it doesn't say therefore God hardened his heart. It says he wouldn't let him pass by for. What's the reason for that? For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate. This is the sovereignty of God even over the human will. Sovereignty of God over this man, over his life. Now you see the sovereignty of God also in verse 25. In a little different light. We read it a moment ago. Think about this. This day I, God says, will begin to put the dread and fear of you on all peoples. He can do that? Look at verse 36. Who won this battle? Verse 36 says, right in the middle, The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Wait, did Israel win the battle against Sinai or did God do this thing? This says, the Lord our God gave all into our hands. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og, also the king of Bashan. This is the sovereignty of God, not only over the human will, but sovereignty of God over your victory. Who won these battles? Israel? This says the Lord your God gave them into his hand. Now, I say a difficulty. This isn't a difficulty for everybody. But it's a difficulty for some because they worry. At least this is one reason it could be difficult. They worry that does this diminish human responsibility? Does this diminish human responsibility? And the answer is absolutely not. Sihon, this king, is still, as we read through this text, he's still responsible for his actions, his sin. His rejection of God's will. He's still responsible for that, and yet I can read this verse 30, and it says, God made his heart obstinate. Both of those things are true. What about human responsibility? The people of Israel still had to fight. God gave them, gave them to the people of Israel, and yet this verse tells us they had a responsibility to obey God and fight. It's just true. Divine sovereignty, he's in control, absolute control, and yet human responsibility still, still exists in the middle of that. Now, how do, the, how do those two things mesh together? Divine sovereignty and human responsibility, how do they go together? And the answer for me is, I don't know. I don't know how to put those things together. I know from the, from the Scripture, this is what the Bible teaches, God is sovereign, absolutely, perfectly sovereign. He's perfectly and absolutely orchestrating all things, even the things we're reading here. And yet He's doing it in such a way that men are still responsible for their actions, for their sin, for their obedience. Now this is difficult for some, but for the Christian, this, this actually shapes your life. Think about the things that God calls you to do and obey. You're responsible to obey God and do what he says. And yet, what kind of things ought you to be praying in light of this truth, the sovereignty of God? You ought to pray things like Psalm 127, unless, Lord, unless you build the house, unless you build the house, we labor in vain who built it. God, we need you to move. We're going to obey you. We're responsible to obey what you said. But God, unless you move, it's all in vain. It shapes the life of a Christian. And the sovereignty of God also not only shapes his life, but it should bring comfort to the Christian. It brings comfort to us. Think about this. If God is sovereign in this way, then Romans 8.28 really is true. 
He works together all things for good. For those that are called according to His purpose, He works all things for good. All things? You mean even when people sin against me? As, or when people attack me as Sihon attacked Israel, yes, God's even in control of that. He works all things for good. It's a comfort to the people of God. God's sovereignty is a comfort, a life-shaping comfort to the people of God. Now that's the first difficulty. The second one I want to deal with, might take a little longer, is complete destruction. What we see in this text is the complete destruction of the Amorites. No survivors left. No survivors left. Now, as you read through commentaries and people grabbing the Hebrew word that's repeated here and other places in the Old Testament, and and it's this Hebrew word that's translated, at least in ours, devoted to destruction. These people groups... Sihon and Og, these Amorites, they are devoted to this destruction. The, the, the word there that people use is harem, H-E-R-E-M. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. You're supposed to hawk a in it or something when you say a harem or something. But, that, but, but, but this idea of devoted to destruction is what we see in our passage. I want you to see it. And I want you to feel the, what many people have felt of difficulty of this. Look at chapter 2. Verse 34, and we captured all his cities at that time, and here's the word, and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children, we left no survivors. Look at it again, chapter 3, verse 3. So the Lord our God gave into our hand Agos also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. Look at verse 6. 3, 6. And we devoted them to destruction. There's that word again. We devoted them to destruction as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. Now, I say this is a difficulty because it's a hard thing for many people who have read the Bible to swallow. Those who are predisposed to reject God use this as a justification for them to reject that mean God of the Old Testament. But men and women of faith lean in deeper. Trust God. We know who our God is. He's taught us who He is. We know what He's like. And we lean in deeper to understand God's words. And we change our views, not His. But it's been a difficulty for many. So I want to try to to give some what I hope will be helpful insights into this whole idea of harem or devoting to destruction. I want to try to give some helpful insights that might help us to deal with this rightly. Okay? First, we need to notice that harem or complete destruction was only meant for a specific group of people for a specific reason. It was specifically for the Canaanites, which the Amorites are part of those people. The Canaanites in the land that they're going to possess, that's who that was meant for. When Israel fought other places outside of those Canaanites, the the war rules were not the same. Complete destruction was not the rule. I want you to see that, so you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 20. And we won't stay here long because obviously we'll come to it in the future, God willing. But Deuteronomy chapter 20 makes it very clear that devotion to destruction was for a specific group of people, not everybody that they fought in war. Now, if you look at Deuteronomy 20, verse 10 through 14, it tells them how to conduct ethics and warfare, and and it's an offering of peace to them. And if they respond with peace, here's how you respond. If they fight you, here's what you do. Uh, you, You leave the innocents, fight the soldiers, stuff like that that you would expect, which you would typically typically expect God to give in rules for war. But then when you get to verse 15, look at look at what it says here. Thus you shall do to all the cities that are very far from you. 
So not in that promised land, not the Canaanites. Okay, thus, what, what, what I just said, you shall do for the cities that are very far from you, which are not cities of the nations here. Verse 16. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, which includes Sihon and Og and others that are coming in Joshua, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, and it even gives you a reason here, one reason, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so, and so you sin against the Lord your God. Now think with me for a minute. How many people groups are there in the world? There's thousands and thousands and thousands of people groups all over the world. Now think about this. Instead of being astounded that God treated one, peop, one group of people like this, we need to be astounded that God doesn't treat every nation like this, including us. Complete destruction is our just due. Now, another insight that I hope will be helpful to you is that this action, this God telling them to devote them to complete destruction, it is not an unjust command. This is not injustice. It's, God is not unjust. And that's how we know that because we know our God. He is not an unjust God. He's a just God. Now we need to take our minds like Abraham. You remember Abraham in Genesis 18. God told Abraham, I'm about to pour out complete destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. He knew it was coming. But what does Abraham know about his God? And this is the same thing we need to carry into these battles with Sihon and Og. What does Abraham know about his God? He says, should not the God of all the earth do what's just? God, would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And through that process, God tells him, no, I won't destroy, I won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. If there's 50 righteous here, I won't do it. If there's 40 righteous here, I won't do it. If there's 30, and he, and, he, and he keeps working it down. In fact, through that whole process, God delivered righteous Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah before he poured out the judgment. And so what I'm communicating here is that we need to walk into these battles against Sihon and Og and view them the way that Abraham viewed the, 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 the complete destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Shall not the God of all the earth be just, do what's right? Would he destroy the righteous with the wicked? And the answer in Genesis 18 is no, he won't. So we can trust, even if we don't understand, we can trust him in that. We can trust him there. Another insight here. This, this action of God towards Sihon and Og is not sinful partiality or sinful favoritism, but this is God pouring out judgment on, listen to me, extreme evil. God is pouring out judgment just judgment on extreme evil. And I want to read that to you from Deuteronomy chapter 9. This is not sinful partiality. Listen to what it says. 9-4. God, God tells the people of Israel this. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, speaking about those people on whom are coming complete destruction, don't say this. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. God says, don't say that. Whereas, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. God is raining down just justice on extreme Extreme, and if you just study just the scriptures on these people groups, it's extreme wickedness. And God's pouring out judgment and justice on them here. Another insight: this call of God to the people of to the people of Israel to completely destroy Sihon and Og and these other peoples, it was not an impulsive act of God. This was not impulsive. 
And that's very clear. Let me read this to you from Genesis, way back in Genesis chapter 15. You imagine this, centuries. This is Abraham. This is being said to and about Abraham. This is centuries before the call to completely destroy them. And listen to what it says in Genesis 15, verse 16. God says to Abraham, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Abraham, your descendants, you're you're going to have through your lineage is going to become a nation, the nation of Israel. They're going to be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And in the fourth generation, I'm going to bring them back to the land of Canaan here amongst the Canaanites. Why? Why such a delay? Why the fourth generation? Why wait so long? Why centuries going by? And it says this, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete centuries God has waited patiently as extreme wickedness went on and on and on and no repentance and no repentance they were warned no repentance wickedness continues on and gets worse and worse and worse God has been merciful God has been patient he's been so patient and merciful that there's even people that were rescued out of these peoples that that were completely destroyed like Rahab out of Jericho Or like Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah. God has been patient. Now one more last insight here that may be be helpful to you. For most people, the difficulty here about harem or complete destruction, it's not necessarily God's sovereignty over death. That's inescapable. A storm comes, a hurricane comes. A disaster comes. A sickness comes. Things come and people die. Not just grown soldiers, not just men, but men, women, and children. People die. And God is sovereignly and perfectly in control, orchestrating it all. That happens every day. So that's, that's not necessarily people's biggest problem here. The difficulty is the instrument that God uses to bring about the complete destruction. Namely here, Israel. He tells Israel to go do it. And that's the difficulty, rightly so, for most people. Now to understand that, to grasp that, you need to understand the, un- the uniqueness of Israel. This is not just like Israel's a nation, just like any other nation on the earth or any other nation since then. It's not that way. This is, there's a uniqueness to the people of Israel. They are a unique and direct instrument of God's justice being poured out. In other words, no other person, no other nation, no other institution has ever been given this direct expression of pouring out God's just anger and wrath on wickedness. To understand this, you need to put Israel in a unique category. In a category maybe similar to like when God sends angels to destroy whole peoples like Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody thinks about the angels and says, how could God send the angel? That seems unjust. They don't think about it that way. Well, you need to put Israel in a similar category. They're in a unique place to put God's justice on display here. So, and, and with that in mind, I want us to go a little bit deeper here. We don't need to just understand the text so we can feel comfortable with it. We need to understand it so we can get the deeper meaning of it. What is the reason? What is the reason for this full an unvented expression of God's wrath on an evil people. What's the reason for this? And I believe the reason is to put the holy justice of God on display. Our God is a just judge, a God who is angry with the wicked every day. He's a just God. And these events, like the flood or like Sodom and Gomorrah or like the destruction of the Canaanite people, complete destruction, is putting His holy justice on display. I want to read a few quotes to you from Meredith Klein. He said that this is an example, this harem, this complete destruction, is an example of the ethical principle of the last judgment intruding into their time. He says this, On rare occasions... God breaks into human history with the immediacy and the finality of the judgment of the last day. 
He goes on to call what's happening here anticipated eschatology, that what's coming in the end is being anticipated or shown or, or expressed through the judgment poured out on these people. In other words, the judgment of Haram, the judgment of complete destruction on these Amorites is a foreshadowing for us of the final judgment that is to come, of the justice of God that is to come. It's like, like I said a moment ago, how should you think about the flood when God destroyed every human on the planet but eight? How should you, how should you think about Sodom and Gomorrah when God pours out a, a fire and brimstone and people burn to their death? In a horrific death, all of them there, except Lot that was rescued. And, and, and when we see those things in the Scripture, what should be coming to our mind? Well, the New Testament tells us those things are supposed to make us think about the wrath to come, the justice of God that's coming, the judgment that's on its way. And so just as you would look at those examples and you would walk away and feel warned, you look at the flood and you feel warned about the judgment. You look at Sodom and Gomorrah, you feel warned about the judgment to come. So you should look at Haram and the complete destruction of Sihon and Og and feel warned about the coming judgment. So brothers and sisters, in closing this out, this piece of it out, this difficulty, everybody who hears my voice, listen to me. You need to take heed to this. Take heed to this reality. Our God is a God of perfect justice. He is not grandfather in the sky that's soft on sin. That's not what the Bible puts in front of us. He's soft on sin so you can get into heaven. That's not what he's like. He's a God of inflexible justice. That's what he's like here. And you got to see it. And these examples are supposed to put it right in front of our face. Now, every single one of us deserves harem. Every single one of us deserves to be completely destroyed under the wrath of God. God is patient. As he was with the Amorites for centuries, he's a patient God. Uh, the prophet Isaiah says that God holds out his hands all day long to a rebellious people that provoke him to his face continually. He's patient and he's merciful. But there's a moment where that patience and that mercy that you can reach right now through Christ gets outside of your reach and all it is is judgment all it is is the justice of God so understand what I'm saying there's something more terrifying than the flood that's coming there's something more horrifying than Sodom and Gomorrah that's coming and if the complete destruction of the Amorites bothers you how will you handle the wrath of the Lamb that's coming? And through this text of Scripture, you've been warned by it, we've been warned by it, and we need to respond appropriately. And that response is flee to Christ, the one who, the New Testament says, delivers us from the wrath to come. He delivers us from the wrath to come. It's the only proper response. Now, I hope I've helped you a bit with these difficulties. Now, I want to get back to the text and the reason for this text, the meaning of this text of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and 3. I want to do that by asking two questions. And let's try to get underneath these questions. Question number one, why does Moses remind the new generation of Israelites of these two battles. They've conquered Sihon and Og and they're, they're about to enter into the promised land. Why does, why does Moses remind them of these two things at this moment? And repeatedly throughout his sermons in Deuteronomy. That's the first question. The second question, how ought these battles, as we look at them and read them, how, how should they affect the coming generations of believers? including us? That's our two questions. So first question, why does Moses remind the new generation of these two battles? And I believe the answer there is to prepare them for the coming war. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Deuteronomy 3, verse 21. And I commanded Joshua at that time, 
Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So those two Amorite kings, Sihon and Og. So will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are coming. He's reminding them of what God did to these two kings to prepare them for the war that's coming. Prepare them for the battle that's coming. Listen to me. Deuteronomy 7.1 says this. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you're entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, listen to this, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. They're about to face Og-like foes, Sihon-like foes in the promised land. And he's reminding them, do you remember what I did to these two? Prepare for battle. It's to prepare them not only to fight, but to fight fearlessly. Because God fights for them. That's the next verse. Look at chapter 3, verse 22. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. He's calling to this. Fight fearlessly because God fights for you. Look at, look at uh, chapter 3, verse 2. Remember this? But the Lord said to me, do not fear him. Fearlessly fighting. Do not fear him. Why? For I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand. Remember my sovereignty. Remember my control. Remember my power. Remember my strength. And go fight fearlessly. For it's God that fights for you. Recounting these battles is meant to remind them of God's complete sovereignty and power and strength. They're going to be tempted to fear. But they, as they begin to fear, they need to have that little piece that says, but God did this, but God said this, and look at who he is. And therefore, it does away with their fear. They need that. He's trying to keep them. Why is he reminding them of this? He's trying to keep them from spiritual amnesia. Forgetting who God is. Forgetting what God has said, forgetting his promises, forgetting his faithfulness. Listen to me. Forgetfulness begets, begets, excuse me, fearfulness. Forgetfulness begets fearfulness. If you have spiritual amnesia, you forget what God has said, you forget who he is, you're going to be anxious and afraid. And he's trying to stop them from this spiritual amnesia. We need that. Do I even have to make the application that we need that today? We need to remember who God is. Grab his word, grab his promises, grab his truth, and remember our God. This is how you kill fear. This is how you kill anxiety. Now, second question, how ought these two battles against Sihon and Og, how should they affect the coming generations of believers, even us? As we think about these battles, they're written down for us, how should it affect the coming generation of believers, even us? First thing, believers should be encouraged by these battles to fight to fight. More battles will come for God's people and they must be ready to fight. Now for us today, it's not a physical warfare. You remember Peter was rebuked, right? When he took up that physical sword and cut off Malchus's ear, he was rebuked for that. <clears throat> the people of God today are called to what? Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to take up the shield of faith and go to war to fight. Now, many today don't want to fight. Warfare means pain. And we tend to love ourselves too much. Fighting brings discomfort. And man, we love our comfort. Warfare means there's people that might not like you, that might not be happy with you, but, but, and, and, and we love the praise of people, the praise of men too much. But we need to consider Israel as a type of the church, as a type of the people of God today, a type of the church. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11 says this, Now these things happened to them, Israel, 
These things happened to them as examples. And they were written down for our learning. Upon whom the ends of the earth, the ends of the ages have come. That's us, the church. They, it happened to them as examples. It was written down for our learning, for the church today. We need to consider these things and learn to fight. We also are supposed to be fighters. Listen to the language. I'm just, just going to give you several verses here. Again, making note takers angry. Listen to the language of the New Testament here. Philemon 2 calls a Christian a fellow soldier. 2 Timothy 2 verse 3 and 4 says this, Share in the suffering, in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The New Testament talks about the people of God as fighters, as soldiers, those who are at war. 2 Timothy 4.17, I have fought the good fight. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Philippians 2.25 calls another Christian a fellow soldier. 1 Timothy 1.18, wage the good warfare. It's a command. And 2 Timothy 10 verse 3 and 4 says, We are not waging war according to the flesh, we're not in that physical battle. We're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. <clears throat> it is true that the church, the people of God, are a restrained people or a muzzled people. But that's not all that we are. If some Christians lack godly restraint... Others lack holy zeal to fight. Christians don't get an option here. Do I, get, do I do holy restraint or am I a fighter for the kingdom of God? You don't get an option here. You don't get to pick here. If you've got no fight in you, your so-called restraint is a cover for cowardice or maybe laziness. Men don't have to be restrained who have no fight in them for the things of God. And so we're here, we're called, Grace Community Church, we're called to battle through these examples. Now, second thing I want to mention here is believers from looking at the battles of Sihon and Og, not only called to fight, but I believe looking at these battles should call us to worship. Won't you turn with me to Psalm 135? Psalm 135. How ought believers today or in following generations respond to what we see with Sihon and Og? Well, look at Psalm 135. Now, I want you to notice right in the middle of that psalm, we get a mention of Sihon and Og, those battles that we just read about. I'm going to start in verse 8. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both man and a beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. Remember reading that in Exodus? Who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kingdoms of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage a heritage to his people Israel. So there it is. The God who destroyed Pharaoh and did his work there, the God who delivered Sihon and Og to Israel, that God is who he's describing. And, and as Sihon and Og and those battles are being mentioned right here, as those battles are being mentioned, what's he calling us to do with that? I want you to notice this in the psalm. How does the psalm start? This is what he's calling us to do. Verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to His name, for it is pleasant. And He goes on to give reasons you should praise the Lord, that you should worship God. And sitting right in the middle of that are these battles against Sihon and Og. Worship Him for that. That's also how the psalm ends. Verse 19. 
O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Looking at these battles should cause us to worship God. To praise Him. Same thing in Psalm 136. Next Psalm. Look at verse 19. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant for his steadfast love endures forever. So he starts detailing what we just read about in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. And he's saying for his steadfast love endures forever. What's he wanting us to do here? Well, again, look at the beginning of the psalm. Psalm 136, verse 1. Here's what he wants us to do. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he begins to give reasons to give worship and praise and thanks and bless the name of this God. And, and in those reasons includes these battles against Sihon and Og. Look at verse 26. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. So Grace Community Church, look at these two battles. As we read them in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, look at these two battles and worship God and fight fearlessly. Worship Him for His power. Worship Him for His complete sovereignty. Worship Him in every victory. Worship Him for every battle you end up having to fight. Worship Him for His steadfast love that even in destroying these people, He's protecting His own. He's protecting the people of God. Worship Him for His steadfast love and be encouraged to fight fearlessly. Now here's how this works for Israel. Something like this. I've destroyed Sihon and Og for you. Of whom should you be afraid? These legendary figures, this, this, this man of the Rephaim, like, I've already destroyed these people, and now you're going into the promised land to take it. Of whom will you be afraid? Every moment you think you should be afraid. No, remember what I did here. That's how it worked for Israel. It's even more glorious for the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus has destroyed enemies far greater than Sihon and Og. Jesus has destroyed Satan. Listen to Hebrews 2.14. Through death, he destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus has destroyed sin. Listen to Romans 8.3. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus has destroyed death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26 says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's destroyed greater enemies. Our Christ, our Savior, Jesus, has done this. So, precious Christian, as you live in this world that's called the present evil age, as you live here, and as you're advancing his kingdom, you got his gospels in your mouth. You're conquering for Christ, wielding the sword of the Spirit. What can stop you? Just like they would look back at Sihon and what can stop you? Don't you know the enemies Christ has already destroyed? Legendary enemies have been completely toppled. Spiritual Sihon and spiritual Og have been destroyed. The land is yours. Worship God and go fight for it. Let's pray. God, we lift up worship to you for your power. There's none like you, God, and there's none who can stop you. We lift up worship to you, Lord, for your sovereignty, your perfect sovereignty, Lord. You orchestrate all things for your glory and namesake and for the good of your people. And for that, God, we give you praise. 
God, thank you for these things happening to them as examples and written down for our instruction. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be instructed to fight. To fight for your glory, to fight for your namesake, to fight for the advance of your kingdom. God, teach us to how to be restrained at your word and how to go to war at your word. God, I pray that you would rid us of cowardice or laziness. That you would kill our fear and anxiety. And that you cause us to be what you say in your words, soldiers for Christ. Without weapons that are according to the flesh, but weapons that have divine power to tear down strongholds. God, I pray that you help us to take those up for the glory of your name. Help us, please, Lord, as your people. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.